the NBA universe gives us two game sevens and a game six that has ramifications like a game seven. The game six in question, Rockets Warriors. That game is going to have a domino effect on both franchises. Second round of the NBA playoffs was great. Let's get into it. It's the Cypher. So let's do the backstory. In last year's conference finals, the Rockets take a 3-2 lead in game five. They lose Chris Paul, but they still got the next two games. The Warriors come back and win the series in seven. So the theme all during the offseason leading up into this season and throughout this season has been if Chris Paul were 100% healthy, the Rockets would have defeated the Warriors. Now, that's not just a narrative that a few people have. Even I, to some degree, I have to admit, I thought had CP3 been healthy, that was the Rockets series. But what I also told people is you have to realize that series don't or seasons don't play out the same way. Last season was last season. And yet the Rockets still seem to be hung up on last season coming into this season and more importantly into these playoffs. Here we go. Rockets Warriors in the second round. Critical game five. Now I told people, look, after the Warriors went up 2-0, the series was far from over. If you looked at how the first two games were played, I didn't question whether or not Houston would get into it and make it a series. What I wondered is, could they get over the hump? And maybe what happened in game five might be the worst thing that could have happened to the Rockets. KD goes down late in the third quarter. The Warriors are without Kevin Durant. And rather than take advantage of that, it seemed like the Rockets froze. James Harden went almost eight minutes in the fourth quarter without taking a shot. Steph was incredible in the fourth, as was Clay. Golden State pulls out game five. They go up 3-2. Now the script has been flipped. It's the Warriors up 3-2 without KD heading to Houston. And pressure busts pipes. I think the next 48 to 72 hours leading up to game six, all the Rockets heard. In particular, all James Harden and Chris Chris Paul, CP3 heard leading up to this game was if they don't beat the Warriors at home in game six without Kevin Durant, they'll never live it down. That these two great players, Chris Paul and James Harden, look, have had shaky playoff histories. Here's an opportunity right now to break through and take advantage of the fact that Durant is out. And yet, As game six started to play out, the team that was playing with all the pressure, the team that was playing tight was the Rockets. James Harden, a man that lives at the free throw line, a man that gets to the line 13 to 14 times a game, shoots almost 90% from the free throw line. He missed five free throws. And that was in the first half. He was just shook. You could tell by the way he was playing, his body language. He was just tight. And the Warriors, the Warriors were playing with house money. They came out aggressive. They came out ball movement. 
They got production from their bench. Look, the Warriors bench is probably the worst bench in the NBA when you talk about production off the bench. They might average 12 to 15 points a game. And I don't think they averaged that much. But in game six, the Warriors bench came up with a big 31 points. They got 14 points and five rebounds from Kevin Looney. They got 11 points from Sean Livingston. That kind of production nobody saw coming. And you could you could chalk that up to a heart of a champion. But the Warriors came out extra aggressive. What was most impressive, though, Steph Curry was in foul trouble. Draymond was in foul trouble. Steph goes to the bench for the bulk of the first half scoreless. All you have on the floor is Clay and a bunch of role players. And for whatever reason, the Rockets don't elect to blitz Clay. They don't select to attack Clay and make Clay give up the ball. It didn't make sense. I don't understand the strategy. You can blame that on the players, but to me, it starts with the coach. And look, there's no secret. We all know Mike Van D'Antoni knows little to nothing about defense. But that's inexcusable. If the only scoring option is Clay, you got to attack Clay. Just to make him give up the rock, just to make him make someone else shoot the ball. And I, granted, the Warriors bench, they were amazing. Not to mention, they got not surprising clutch play. From the veteran, one of the great six men of all time, Andre Iguodala, who did start. Iguodala was six from 11 from the field, but more importantly, Iggy was five for eight from three. 17 big points, three steals. That's what he's known for. Andre Iguodala, when you talk about great six men like Mono Ginobili and people of that nature, you can put Andre Iguodala, you can put Iggy right there with them. And I kept saying at, at halftime, it's 57-57, and if you're Houston, you have to be worried. But if you're a Rockets fan, you have to be beyond worried. It's 57. It's tied, and Steph has not scored. And I said before the beginning of the third quarter, if Steph gets 15 points along with what the rest of the team are doing, the Rockets are going to be in trouble. I said as long as this game remains tight, Houston's going to have a problem because I thought the pressure would mount. I thought Harden would start to feel the pressure more and more as the clock wound down, and he did. James Harden was a no-show, and he had four big turnovers in the fourth quarter. Now, the end of the day, you can look at his numbers. You see 35 points. You can see the eight rebounds and the five assists. Those look good, but if you watch the game, when it mattered, when they needed him, when it was money time, no show. The truth of the matter is the Rockets' best player, the guy who stepped up big time in the second half, who carried them and kept the game close at one point, actually giving the Rockets a lead, was CP3. CP3 not only had his best game of the series, he was a beast. CP3 came up big with 27 points, 11 rebounds, and 6 assists. And yet it wasn't enough. You look at Eric Gordon and Eric Gordon had been terrific for the entire series. And he picked game six to have his worst game of the series. Clint Capella, a guy who right after the Rockets had gone into the second round, demanded, wanted, claimed he wanted to play the Warriors. He was a no-show. And he really was a no-show for most of the series. He was getting a shot block. He couldn't finish at the rim. Pressure bust pipes. And when you look at the Rockets, their best player, he couldn't handle the pressure. 
He didn't step up when he was needed. And I think at some point, we talked about this before. Look, you can be a superstar player, but it doesn't mean you're a franchise player. And more importantly, it doesn't mean you're that guy. I don't think James Harden can be the best player on a championship winning team. And as much as I'm a fan of his, as much as I'm a fan of Russell Westbrook, feel the same way about both of them. Great players, superstars, both of them. They can't be your best player. Not if you're trying to win a title. Not if you're trying to win the championship. They can't be your best player. They're just not that guy. For different reasons, mind you, Russ plays with no fear. If Harden had what Russ had in his chest, I think the Warriors would have lost the series. But what Russ has in his chest, it's his greatest strength. And at times, it's his greatest weakness. He's guilty of doing too much way too often. But I digress. Look, this series, even though it only went six games, it felt, game six felt like a game seven. And let me explain. Most people, including myself, thought that the Rockets would find a way to win game six at home and take it back to Oracle for game seven. But because of the way the game played out, the impact, how it felt, it was like a gut shot. And I I, I don't have a, a rooting interest one way or another a lot of people think that i'm not a fan of the warriors but i admire what they've done the last five seasons i admire the run they've gone on all i said was i thought because they were a lesser version of what they had been the past two seasons and that the nba as a whole and more importantly the eastern conference had gotten so much better i didn't think they would three-peat this year now they can prove me wrong don't get me wrong they they can prove me wrong the opportunities out there all I'm saying is that that's just me. If you said, Mo, Warriors versus the field, I took the field. That's just me. It's nothing against the Warriors. It's just what I think. The same way when you look at how series shape up. Warriors versus the Blazers. Obviously, I think Golden State's going to win the series because I just don't think Portland has enough. But most people would tell you that Portland, if you look talent for talent, in terms of depth and overall talent, they shouldn't have beat the Nuggets, but they found a way. Now, granted, Golden State, the Dubs, are a completely different monster. And it would take, Dame would have to put up monster numbers along with CJ, and they would still have to get production from Rodney Hood, Cantor, and a couple of other guys. I'm not saying it's not possible, because the one area where you can attack Golden State, I think your best offensive against Golden State is to attack them, is to make... Steph and Clay play defense. And that's something that the Blazers can do with CJ and Dane. Having said that, if you're asking me who I think is going to win the series, I think the Warriors are going back to the finals. But as a fan, would I like to see this go six or seven? No question. Then sliding over into the Eastern Conference. And you look at the Raptors and the Sixers. And I'll give the Sixers credit. Look. Let's let's backstory this context. Philly, after getting destroyed in game five, they come back in game six and they show a lot of heart. And Jimmy Buckets, Ben Simmons, Tobias Harris, J.J. Reddick, they all showed up. Embiid didn't have a big game, but he was impactful. He was great defensively. He grabbed boards. He was impactful. He was a factor. And they found a way to gut it out and get you to a game seven. 
Who doesn't enjoy Game 7? All NBA fans enjoy this. So here we go. Game 7, Raptors, Sixers. And the way the game played out, it was a great game. It was a little ugly at times, but because of the excitement, but because of what was at stake, and because late in the game, the shot-making from Kawhi Leonard, the shot-making from Jimmy Butler, you got into it. It was exciting. The disappointing part, not the finish, not the actual finish, but maybe the lead up to the finish. The Sixers went five possessions in a row and got nothing. And they ran no sets. And for some strange reason, they had Joel Embiid 30 feet from the basket on all of those possessions. And I don't understand that. You're helping the defense. You are actually letting the defense off the hook. By putting him out that far and getting him the ball, it allowed the Raptors to extend their defense and push up on him and the shooters. And their offense just was stagnant. If not for Jimmy Butler grabbing the rebound off a missed Kawhi Leonard free throw attempt and driving the basket to tie the score, their offense was terrible. The, the way they executed late, that's a reflection directly on not just the players, but more importantly, Brett Brown. There's just no excuse for that. You have the best big man in basketball in terms of getting buckets, and you have him out 30 feet from the basket. That makes zero sense. But here we go. Jimmy Buckets ties the game. There's four seconds left on the clock. Raptors side out. They get it to Kawhi. He's able to turn right to his strong hand, dribbles all the way to the far right corner, levels up, leaps, shoots, and the ball goes, like people said, 40 feet in the air. It must have hit every part of the rim before it falls in. And it's a great shot by a great player. Some people say there's luck involved. Nah, I'm not going there. It was just a shot that hit the rim a few times, but the bottom line is a great player rose up and made a great play. And sure, if you saw the game, yes, Embiid kind of took a bad angle, but I wasn't looking at at Embiid. What I was watching, even in the moment, was how Ben Simmons quit on the play. I didn't understand it. He just stopped playing. I, I don't understand that. Your season is on the line. Even if you can't get to him, even if you can't block his shot, you play through. You make him feel you. At least let him be able to see you out of the corner of his eye. Be a presence. Do something. But anything but not stop playing. I just didn't understand that. It's a disappointing loss. But remember, the Raptors are the better team. They were favored to win. This is a big step forward to me to some degree for the Sixers. I know some people think Philly should have won the series. I don't. Because I don't think when you look at them, how they play, especially in their half-court execution, I just don't think they were ready to take that next step. It was a tough fought series. But in the end, the great thing about the NBA, barring major injuries, the better team won. And the Raptors are the better team. They had the best player on the floor. That was Kawhi Leonard. And that's why they advanced to face the Milwaukee Bucks. Now, let's backtrack to the Western Conference. Context, right? The Blazers come up big. CJ McCallum was a monster in game six to force a game seven. They go on the road to Denver. They're down 15 points. 
They walk the Nuggets down at home and pull out game seven with great clutch shot making by C.J. McCallum. And he had a great block late in the game on Jamal Murray on a breakaway. There should have been a layup. C.J. McCallum, to me, this was like his coming out party this series. Look, Dame is their best player, but for this series, there's no question C.J. was their best player. C.J. was the one that carried them. This backcourt, this backcourt is going to be the reason that I think the Blazers will win at least one. I have no doubt they're going to win a game versus Golden State. I think they might win two. I think it's a good series, but I think ultimately Golden State's overall talent is going to be too much for, uh, for the Blazers. Look, the Blazers just don't have the firepower to play with the Warriors. But I'm excited for this series because you're talking about the two very best backcourts in basketball going head up. If you're a basketball fan, Dame Steph, CJ Clay, yeah, I'm watching that. Now, is there a little side story to this? Sure. But that kind of goes back to Rockets Warriors. You know the narrative. There's a lot of people that truly believe the Warriors don't need KD. And so them winning game six, that was great. And they deserve all the credit because they made the big shots. Steph was amazing. 23 points in the fourth quarter. All that. And Clay carried him in the first half again. They deserve every prop, every accolade thrown their way. But if you watch that game, as great as Golden State was with shot making, the Rockets were 100% opposite. To me, that game was more about what the Rockets aren't. That game was more about what James Harden isn't. But I'll say this. Anybody that truly believes the Warriors don't need Kevin Durant to win the title, you don't know basketball. Yes, they won a title without Kevin Durant in 2015. But they also won that title versus the Cleveland team that had no Kyrie, no LeBron. So, yes, they won that title that year. And then the following year, yes, they won 73 games. We all know that. That's, that's been told over and over, 73-win team. What keeps getting left out is that 73-win team, they didn't win a title. They're not champions. That 73-win team lost in Game 7 at home and did not score the last four minutes of the game. You heard me. They had a donut for the last four minutes of the game. So, yes, when Draymond makes that call, it's not just to talk. It's because he knows they need Kevin Durant. If he doesn't make that call, Cavs and Warriors meet again, and the Cavs win again. So, yes, the Golden State Warriors, can they go deep maybe without KD? Sure. Can they win an NBA title this year when you look at the Raptors or the Bucks? No. And let me remind you, when people start talking about how the ball moves, their offense, this and that, how it struggles, here's the reality. If KD doesn't do what he does in the first round versus the Clippers, the Warriors don't get out the first round. That's his value. His value is when Steph and Clay get locked down, he can still make you pay. He can take over a game. He is the ultimate insurance policy. But we got to stop with this narrative. Well, Steph and Clay sacrifice so much like KD takes all the shots. Look, the truth of the matter is, if you look at their stats, 
Steph takes the most shots. For the season, Steph took 19 shots a game. Clay took 18 shots a game. KD took just under 18 shots a game during the regular season. Now, what separates him from Clay and Steph is he has the ability to get to the free throw line. And that's why he can generate offense in another way that they both can't do consistently. The Warriors are a great team. Steph and Clay are a great backcourt. But don't fool yourself into believing they don't need KD to win this, this, this championship. They have an opportunity to three-peat, and they're going to need Kevin Durant if they want a legit chance to three-peat. And look, to be honest with you, with KD, I don't have them three-peating. But if he's not there and you should get to the finals, it's not even going to be a good series. I'm just keeping it 100. As a basketball fan, hey, I'm just putting out the facts. Love what the Warriors organization has done, but don't sleep on the value of number 35. Look forward to seeing Blazers versus Warriors. Look forward to seeing Raptors versus Bucks, Giannis, Kawhi. These are the kind of matchups basketball fans dream of. And of course, when you look at those two teams, there's some similarities. Kawhi's got Kyle Lowry, who's an all-star. Giannis has Chris Middleton, who's an all-star. There's Eric Bledsoe, there's Mark Gasol, Danny Green, Pascal Siakam. This is going to be an interesting series. I, I would say that if you ask me who I think is going to win, I think this is a pick em. I really do. I think the Bucks have the advantage in terms of their size and their length. But I think Toronto's a scrappy team, and I think Kawhi's a guy on a mission. I don't think you're going to see Kawhi and Giannis match up a lot, but when they do, who's not going to be excited to see that? I don't really want to get into the Lakers drama. They, they, they have enough with everything that's happened with Magic Johnson and everything that's happened since. So there's no secret. Everybody knows what's going on. The Lakers interviewed Tyrone Liu, liked him enough to offer him a deal, but they offered him a three-year deal, and they wanted to pick his staff. So he rightfully declined. He bounced. He did not accept that offer. What has happened is the Lakers have agreed to terms with Frank Vogel, three-year deal, and Jason Kidd will be his assistant coach. I, I, I'm just telling you from a fan on the outside looking in, that's next-level shady. You can't pick your own staff. And the guy that interviewed for the same job is now your top assistant as if the coach in waiting so Vogel slips up there's Jason Kidd don't know other than the fact that Jeannie is the team president what's going on in terms of the hierarchy in the Lakers organization but right now it's sad to say the Lakers have replaced the New York Knicks as the most embarrassing front office in the NBA and that has a trickle-down effect on your franchise overall. What top free agent was going to go to the Lakers before all of this? And now you have this kind of dysfunction. There seems to be a lack of direction, maybe even a lack of a true leader up in the front office. Again, I'm not going to roll into that too deep. Frank Vogel's the new Lakers head coach. Good for the Lakers. They hired a head coach 48 hours before the draft lottery. 
which is today. But going forward, if they're not able to bring in an all-star slash superstar caliber player to play alongside LeBron, and they come up empty-handed like most project they will, I don't know the path forward. And I've said this before. I honestly don't know the path forward. And people have joked about trading LeBron. They've, they've mentioned LeBron asking for a trade. What I am saying is this. If you don't pair him with somebody, that somebody that can play off of him and vice versa, and you're bringing back essentially the same young core, although they have talent, they're still developing. And that means to me they're in a different timetable than a 34-year-old superstar's timetable. LeBron is about right now today because he's only got X amount of years to finish out his career in chase of another title. When you look at their core, you're talking about guys 22 and under. It just doesn't work. And I don't know what the path forward is for the Lakers. What I'll say about this is going forward is they might seriously, seriously want to think about getting Genie to sell the team. You know what? No, Magic wasn't cut out maybe to be a president. Maybe that wasn't really what wasn't in DNA, what, what really drove Magic. But Magic is great at being a boss. Maybe Genie should sell the Lakers to Magic. Maybe that would work. Hey, Facebook fam, YouTube fam, good looking out. Anchor fam, thanks for all the support. We will be back. You know what? Matter of fact, I'm coming back tomorrow, the night of the draft. Well, actually, that's today. And talk about the draft lottery. We're going to get into the draft lottery. And we're going to talk about Blazers, Warriors, game one. We'll get into that later on today. It's the cipher. Next time.